0: better. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Okay, so I love that song, The Voice of Truth. Is that just ah, so needed in this world? There's so many voices that just hit us from all different directions. and um, most of them are from the enemy telling us lies that want to just pull us down and make us useless for his kingdom, but that voice of truth is just a whole different story. So thank you, Lord, for that song this morning reminding me of your good plans for us. Amen. Yes. All right, let's um, take a deep breath. Start this morning with a little recap of where we were before we had our break. Um, In Romans 5, we were reminded by Paul that, yes, all the world has sinned, but that sinful human beings can be declared righteous in God's sight by accepting the free gift of salvation offered through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We learned in that lesson that the only way to experience true peace in this world is by becoming right with God. Jennifer Conger reminded us that the war is over, that we have victory in Christ. And we learned that we can glory in tribulation, because in these times God can produce patience, character, and hope. Do you all remember that? Is it good to recap? Yes, it is good to remember. Um, Okay, I'm going to just pray real quick and we'll get into today's teaching. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get together and study your word as ladies. Father, I just um, pray your spirit be here with us. Fill me with the words you would want me to say this morning, and um, we just give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, In chapters 1 through 5 of Romans, we're going to start chapter 6. It takes a little bit of a different turn. In chapters 1 through 5, Paul dealt with justification which means that we are saved through our faith. Christ did the work and he paid the cost. In chapter six through eight, Paul is switching to the practical truth of sanctification. Sanctification is the act or process of being made holy or set apart. In Romans one through five, we were told that we were dead in sin. Romans six through eight, we're going to learn that we are dead to sin. Not, not that we're free to sin, we're dead to sin. <laughs> chapters 1 through 5 told us we are free from the penalty of sin. And chapters 6 through 8 are going to tell us that we are free from the power of sin. Let's go ahead and get started. In Romans 6, if you want to be with me, I'll you know tell you the verses as we kind of go through here, breaking them apart. Um, verses 1 and 2. And, and bear with me, because... Sometimes as I was studying, I had, like, my little phone app on. Sometimes I had my Bible open. Sometimes I had a commentary open. So the translation may change from New King James to NIV. So if it looks a little different, just bear with me. Um, But it should be pretty much the same. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's our verses from the Bible. To Paul... The idea that anyone who's been saved would continue to sin so that grace may abound is unthinkable. He says, certainly not. Like, this is ridiculous. Paul challenges the faulty notion that believers may continue to sin and yet remain secure and guilt-free in their salvation because of God's grace. People who held this misguided view felt that they were not obligated to God's moral law as long as they had faith and could rely on God's good grace. Um, I know a few people that live like that today. They don't even care to know what God wants from them. They don't want to be held accountable. They just kind of want to believe so that when they die, they go to heaven because they say, I believe. But yet, that's not our ticket to heaven, just saying, I believe in God. Because if we really do believe, that belief should change us. That should create a desire in us to know who God is It should create a desire in us to study his word and to want to live a life that's pleasing to him if we truly believe. So that is just a false claim of saying, I believe so I can go to heaven. It is a lifelong process of sanctification to live a life that's pleasing to God. We need to be growing in our knowledge of who he is, and that's going to change our desire so that our desires become more of his desires, as we study his word and we know what he wants for us, less of our sinful nature is going to rule and more of, more of us is going to be ruled by what God wants for us. Paul is addressing this because our sin nature just wants to get away with as much as possible. A commentary from David Guzik pointed out that from a purely secular or natural viewpoint, grace can be a dangerous thing. This is why many people don't teach or believe in grace and instead emphasize living by the law. They believe that if you tell people that God saves and accepts them apart from what they deserve, then they will have no motivation to be obedient. In their opinion, you simply can't keep people on the straight and narrow without a threat from God hanging over their head. If they believe their position in Jesus is settled because of what Jesus did, then the motivation of holy living is gone. Can we see a problem with that thinking, everybody? Absolutely. Let's imagine that instead of secular law just ruling, you know, our world, we just had grace. Um, no one would even attempt to follow the speed limits because they would just know they'd have grace. There'd be no penalty. Why not go steal some snacks at the liquor store if mom isn't putting them in the cupboards? I mean, we're just going to get met with grace. Um, why not lie if it gets you out of some hot water? I mean, really. The lines of grace can get really blurry in a purely secular view. But here in Romans, Paul is going to try to teach us what it means to walk in grace, set free from the law, but still abiding in what God wants our lives to be. (coughs) Excuse me. Throughout Romans 6, Paul is going to teach us that life as a Christian should not just be no, 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 N-O-N-O-N-O, you know, like a little baby. No, 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 no. That shouldn't be what rules our lives. Instead, he wants us to know, 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 K-N-O-W, K-N-O-W. He uses this word three times in this chapter. He wants us to know something. So let's study what Paul wants us to know. In verses 3 and 4, Paul's going to give us an illustration of the believer's death to sin, baptism. Verses 3 and 4 read, Or do you not know, K-N-O-W, that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Beginning with, or do you not know, Paul's assuming that this is a fundamental issue that believers should know. He wants us to know what baptism should mean to us. Here, Paul's referring to baptism in Jesus as opposed to baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let's just talk about baptism a little bit. When we're baptized into Christ Jesus, this is an outward symbol of an inward change of our hearts. Bless you. (laughs) In our hearts, we've come to the saving knowledge of who Christ is. We have decided to put him in his rightful place of Lord of our lives, and then we need to live in that newness of life. That newness means we're no longer in control, but rather we choose to live a life dedicated to living as God would have us live, letting him lead and guide us in our new walk. There are several verses in the Bible that talk about baptism. We'll just look at a couple of them. One that was modeled for us by Christ is in Matthew 3 verses 16 and 17. You don't have to go there. I'm going to summarize it here for us. In this example, Christ is dunked underwater, and then he came up immediately from the water. The heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. Then suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" In this example, we see the entire Trinity on display. Can you imagine what that looked like? God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit just all in one place. I can just only imagine the glory of that moment. Um, another example of baptism is taught in Mark one four, And so, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I can only imagine how many thousands of people were baptized at this time. It says the whole Judean countryside. Because for centuries, there had been no other prophet before John. So to them, this is like, oh, this is exciting. Let's be part of this. Baptism means to immerse. John immersed people in water as an outward sign of inner spiritual cleansing. And this is relevant only if a person has truly turned from sin and devoted his or whole life to God. The baptism is not the main issue in receiving forgiveness of offenses against God. It's a significant act, but it's only symbolic of a person's commitment. Kind of like a wedding ring is a symbol of your commitment to one another. You know During the ceremony, you exchange rings, but whether or not you have the ring, that commitment is still there. The paperwork is still there. It's still a done deal. This is simply a symbol. And baptism is an important symbol, but it's not required to save us. And we see that when the thief on the cross, you know, Jesus tells him, I'll see you in paradise. And so, yes, it is an important step. And I encourage everyone who hasn't gotten baptized to do it as an outward symbol of what's taken place in your heart. But um, if we know someone who hasn't, who's on their deathbed, I mean, it's not something to stress about. What matters is that we have that relationship with Jesus Christ. After Christ's death and resurrection, so let's think back to what it was like for those people who'd just gotten baptized in Paul's day. Baptism for the followers took on an, the added significance and symbolism of identifying with Christ in his death, his burial being immersed in the water and the resurrection, rising up to live a new and spiritually transformed life. Do all of you kind of understand that symbolism with baptism? You go under, you die to yourself, you rise again in newness of life. Okay. We need to remember this is symbolic, not a, not required for salvation. If someone has not spiritually died and risen with Jesus, all the baptisms in the world will not accomplish it for them. Um cracks me up, one of my boys has decided that, well, did decide when he was little to get baptized over and over and over because he kept like making some bad choices and he thought year after year, I better do it again, I better do it again, but um, that's not required, it, that's a heart thing, not necessarily a water thing, but I was like, okay, son, but just so you know, you don't have to do it every time. <laughs> Verses 5 and 6 tell us, for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Let's take these verses apart a little bit. If we've been united together, the Greek word for this means to be very close, like congenially joined, um, born together or kindred spirits. So if we've been con- congenially joined with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection, then we need to know, K-N-O-W, the second no, we need to know that our old man was crucified with him. The word here used for crucified is katari- katargio? katargio, and it's translated destroyed, but it actually means rendered inactive or paralyzed, not annihilated. Therefore, when your old sin nature is tempting you to go and eat that leftover cake or do those drugs or spread that gossip, we need to remember that that old woman is dead with Christ on that cross, and it's a new woman who now lives because of his resurrecting plan of love for us. That old sin, it's been nailed to the cross with Christ as the sin of the world was laid upon him, that the body of our sin, our old body, might be done away with. We need to know this. We should no longer be slaves of sin. Paul wants us to know that your old body no longer has to rule you. Maybe you were baptized some time ago, but you're still struggling with a certain sin. You're still a slave to that particular thing. We need to commit it to him again, ladies, knowing that you don't need to continue to be a slave to that sin. You have that resurrecting power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, living inside of you, and it will help you overcome that sin nature. Verse 7 is a short and sweet verse. For he who's died has been freed from sin. guys, we're free. If we've died with Christ, he wants us to live free. We need to get a hold of that. Verse 8, if we died with Christ, we also believe that we shall live with him. This is a precious promise, you guys. (laughs) What are the precious promises of hope that we have? Christ said in John 14 too, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If we are saved, if we have died to self, and called on the name of Jesus to be our Savior, we have this promise that we will rise again and live with him. How powerful is that promise? I actually enjoyed a beautiful vision of this around Thanksgiving time. Because I was blessed to go spend time with my brother, but it was kind of making me sad because at that time, I'm not seeing my dad, I'm not seeing my grandma. You know, there's always those special people that you're like, oh, I'm not with them. And so, as I kind of was sad about it, I was given this visual, because they're saved, someday we're all going to have that feast together. We're all going to be at that banquet table with Christ. I'm not going to have to miss them as long as they're saved. And I was like, okay. It's okay. Yeah, for today, I'll miss them. But for eternity, we get to banquet together with him. And that is just such a precious promise. Okay, I think we're on to verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Here, Paul is telling us that we should live knowing, knowing death could not keep our Savior in the grave. When we have died with him, Dying to our sin, death no longer has dominion over us either, ladies. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. The new life we are granted isn't given so that we can live unto ourselves. With the new life, he lives to God. We aren't dead to, we aren't dead to sin, free from sin and given eternal life to live as we please, but to live to please God. God. Spurgeon um, says on this particular verse, If God has given to you and to me an entirely new life in Christ, how can that new life spend itself after the fashion of the old life? Shall the spiritual live as the carnal? How can you that were the servants of sin but have been made free by precious blood go back to your old slavery? Doesn't that just put it into perspective? That is some powerful words. I love him. Verses 11 and 12. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Reckon is an accounting word. Paul tells us to account or reckon the old man as dead forever. God never calls us to crucify the old man, but instead to account him as already dead because of our identification with Jesus on the cross. He also tells us to reckon ourselves to be alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The death to sin is only one side of the equation. The old man is gone, but the new man lives. Verses 13 and 14. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Our members are our body parts, our eyes, our lips, our tongue, our arms. Excuse me. Here Paul's telling us what not to do and what to do. Do not use our body parts to sin, but rather as instruments of righteousness to God. Spurgeon tells us that these words, for sin shall not have dominion over you, give us a test, a promise, and an encouragement. It's a test of our claim to be Christians. Does anger have dominion over you? Does murmuring and complaining? Does covetousness have dominion over you? Does pride, does laziness have dominion over you? If sin has dominion over us, we should seriously ask ourselves if we're really converted. It is a promise of victory, It doesn't say that sin will not be present in you, because that will only be fulfilled when we are resurrected in glory. But it does promise that sin will not have dominion over us because of the great work Jesus did in us when we were born again. It's also an encouragement for hope and strength in the battle against sin. God hasn't condemned you under the dominion of sin. He has set you free in Jesus. This is an encouragement for the Christian struggling against sin, for the new Christian, and for the backslider. So I love that, ladies. Um, I wanted to share a little story, and then I'm going to wrap up with a an an Old Testament version of this New Testament teaching. But the woman that you see standing here today, I don't want to cry. I wasn't always this woman. Um, When I was 18, I moved out of my house because I was too big for my britches. I um, had been in a relationship with a boy since I was 16, um came from a broken home. My mom left when I was two. Uh, my dad dropped me off with my grandma when I was 11. And so there was emptiness. And so this boy, you know, filled some of those holes, okay? And we end up buying a house together, moving in together. Um, but he did not believe in marriage. He'd come from brokenness as well. And when I talked about getting married, because I was saved. Even though we're living in sin sometimes, Don't think we're not saved because God was speaking to me. I was miserable. But um, yet, you know, we've heard that by pastors. There's nothing more miserable than a saved person living in sin. So I'm living in sin, but I'm wanting to make it right. And so I said, well, maybe we should, let's get married. And he says, oh, I don't believe in marriage. All marriages end in divorce. Every man cheats, but I'll always love you. Like I'll love you more than any other man. Well, Of course he can say that because his flesh is getting pleased, you know, by the sinful little girl that I was. But um, when I was 21, I just had this moment with the Lord where he was reminding me, this is not what I want for you. I felt so empty and I wanted more and this was not where it was. I knew that. And so I cried out and decided I was going to get out of that relationship. And um, like I said, it was complicated because we lived together We had a house together. We had debt together. It was a a mess, but it was empty. And so um, the Lord supernaturally gave me strength because, ladies, you know, when you want to change, when you want to get out of that sin that you're in, sometimes the enemy will just pull out all the stops to keep you there. And so this guy was like, okay, I'll marry you, bringing in catered dinners, you know, doing anything to get me to change my mind. But there was just this wall like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And so we went through the process and the pain of of all of that, and then it was over, and I moved in with my dad, and it wasn't long after that that I met my husband, and he's amazing. (laughs) I say that to encourage you. Like, if you're in sin, and God is telling you to get out, ask him to give you the strength to get out of it, and he's faithful. He wants good things for you. But had I... Listen to the lies of the enemy of this is all you're ever going to get. This is the man who's going to love you. Um, You won't find anybody else or anyone better. I would be stuck there. I cannot imagine where I would be had I not left that. And God has been so faithful to me to just bless me abundantly. But when I think back, had I not chosen to do what God was telling me to do, I wouldn't be the woman I am today. And God's still doing a work in me and he's still doing a work in you. So I encourage you. Ask him where you're living that he doesn't want you to live. And I mean that in sinfulness. Like what sin is holding you back from all the blessing that God wants to pour on you? And ask him to give you the strength to get out of it. Because we have that power of resurrection and that Holy Spirit living in us to give us the strength. When God draws that line and tells you to do it and you're obedient, he's going to give you the strength to walk out of that. That's the truth. The voice of truth. I'm just blessed. All right. That's my story. Give me just one second. <laughs> okay. All right. So I was reading in a Romans 6, um, John Corson study. And he says that for every New Testament principle, God gives us an Old Testament illustration. And this one is no exception. So we're going to look at the book of Judges for just a minute to kind of summarize this New Testament teaching. The people of Israel were in bondage to the Canaanites. For 30 years, they'd been intimidated and dominated, repressed and oppressed. The leader of the Canaanites was a man named Jabin. Excuse me. Jabin turned over control of his empire in that particular region to a man named Sisera. Sisera then represents the old man, our old sin nature. Jabin is a picture of Satan, one whose ultimate desire is to oppress, suppress, and depress you and me. After 30 years of serving Jabin and Sisera, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord, in turn, raised up a deliverer, a woman named Deborah. Excuse me. When the time came for the Israelites to engage in battle against the Canaanites, Barak, the Israelite general, said to Deborah, "'I won't go unless you go with me.'" "'Okay,' said Deborah, "'I'll go with you, but you must realize that the credit for the upcoming victory will go to a woman.'" Engage in battle they did. With 900 chariots at his command, Sisera had a huge advantage. The chariot was equivalent to a phantom jet or an Abram's A1 tank, and the people of Israel had nothing like that. It looked like the Israelites would be slaughtered. But God intervened miraculously and gave Israel victory. Sisera, however, managed to escape. Running for his life, off in the distance, he saw a tent. In front of the tent was a woman Sisera recognized, As Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. The word Eber, from which we get the word Hebrew, means crossing over. Who were the Canaanites? They were part of the Canaanites. This meant Heber the Canaanite left the old Canaanite stuff and said to his wife, honey, we're crossing over to a new land and they traded their old world for a new country. That's just what you did when you left the old world system and said, I want to be part of your kingdom, Lord. I've had it with the world's corruption, deception, and pollution. I choose to follow you. You can set up, you set up camp in the new land and what happened? Guess who suddenly and unexpectedly showed up on your front doorstep? The guy who used to dominate you. The guy who used to have authority over you. The guy who used to intimidate you. Sisera. Come on in, said JL to Sisera. Huffing and puffing, Sisera entered JL's tent and gasped. Give me a little water to drink. Folks, that's what the old sin nature always says. Give me a little something to satisfy me. Just one quick look. Just one wrong thought. Just one more time. I'm thirsty and if you satisfy me, I won't bug you anymore. But we've discovered lust is like a fire. The more you feed it, the more it demands and the hotter it gets. Try to appease your lust to satisfy Sisera and it will never work. He'll demand more and more and his lust will burn hotter and hotter within your heart. Sisera wanted water. What did J.L. give? A bottle of milk. Can you imagine running a great distance on a hot day and being given a bottle of room-temperature unpasteurized milk? It must have felt like cotton in Sisera's mouth. The word says, like newborn babies, desire the sincere milk of the word, the profound simplicity of the scriptures. It is the foolish man or woman who says, I already know that passage or that book, so I don't have to study it or meditate upon it, because Sisera needs to be given a continual dose of the milk of the word. After asking for water, Sisera made a second request of JL. Lie for me, he said in verse 20. Cover me up and don't let anyone know I'm here. And that's what our old sin nature says to you and me. Hide your sin. Cover it up. Don't let your old nature, don't let anyone know. So what did JL do? No longer afraid of the old general, this great lady of faith threw a rug over Sisera knowing that having chugged a glass of warm milk after running a semi-marathon, he'd be dozing off before long. At this point, with hammer in hand, J.L. snuck into the tent, drove a tent stake into Sisera's temple, and pinned his head to the ground. Talk about a splitting headache. With a spike and hammer, the old man was reckoned dead. <laughs> what does this spike speak of? It speaks of the spikes that pierced the hands and feet of our Savior. It speaks of Calvary, where Sisera, the old man... In you, who gives orders to you and demands you to be covered up, was paralyzed on the cross. The hammer, it speaks of the word, Jeremiah 23:29. This is the key, folks. We are to say, wait a minute, Sisera. Wait a minute, Jabin. Wait a minute, fleshly tendency. You who are demanding to be satisfied and covered up, I want you to know something. I don't have to give in to you. Even though I don't fully understand it, I appropriate the finished work of the cross as I see it in Romans 6, and you nail Sisera to the ground. Precious people, I don't care what struggle you're going through or what temptation you're wrestling with. It is powerless in light of the cross. When you finally have enough of Sisera, when you at last have your fill of the venom that has infected you and those around you, when you finally determine you don't want to be under dominion any longer, you can be free at that moment. No support group needed, no counseling required. If you say, Lord, you've told me that this old man was paralyzed on the cross, I believe it, that settles it. And with the spike of the cross and the hammer of the word, you nail it right there and you walk away. It's that simple. Amen.